It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 156 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revered TV comedy writers and producers of the last 30 years, Marta Kaufman. The 60-year-old is best known as the co-creator with David Crane and co-executive producer with Crane and Kevin Bright, among others, of the sitcom Friends, which was a massive hit on NBC from 1994 through 2004 and brought her six Emmy nominations for Best Comedy Series, one of which resulted in a win in 2002. But Kaufman also did great work before Friends, earning a Best Writing for a Comedy Series Emmy nomination for another series that she and Crane co-created, HBO's Dream On, in 1993. And she has continued to do great work since Friends, most recently as the co-creator with Howard J. Morris and an executive producer of Netflix's comedy series Grace and Frankie, which stars Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and recently wrapped its third season. Over the course of our conversation in Kaufman's office on the Paramount Pictures lot, where Grace and Frankie is shot and where Kaufman and colleagues currently are writing the show's fourth season, she and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How she and Crane first crossed paths at Brandeis University and wound up writing children's theater and off-Broadway musicals in New York before heading west. How she and Crane landed a job in L.A. writing for Norman Lear, but struggled to come up with anything that pleased the TV legend. How the concept, cast, and pilot of Friends came together, and why the Peacock Network wasn't big on it until its theme song was changed from R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People to the Rembrandt's I'll Be There For You, of which Kaufman was one of the writers. Why Kaufman and Crane creatively went their separate ways after Friends, why Kaufman then spent more than a decade making things other than television, and why she wound up returning to TV with a show not on a broadcast network, but on a streaming service, not multi-camera, but single camera, and not about young people embarking on their lives as grown-ups, but about older women whose lives have blown up and who need to figure out how to go on. We've got all that plus much more, so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Marta, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My and pleasure. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my father obviously was in the plumbing and heating supply business. <laughs> you know, that makes perfect sense. Right, of course. My mom, although she didn't work most of my life, she, when she was 16, she was a dancer her mm -hmm. whole life. And when she was 16, she worked in a mafia-owned nightclub during the Depression to support her parents and three sisters. Wow. And then she had a dancing school. And nice. then when she got pregnant with me, she was like, it's enough. And are you, you were the number two, number two of two. two. Okay. Was TV a big part of your life growing up? Oh my God. I, I have always loved television. I can remember so clearly changing the channel with my hand on the TV, <laughs> seeing the Beatles for the first time on Ed Sullivan. I remember Donna Michi's Circus and when the Flintstones were on on Friday nights and TV became for me a sort of it marked different times of my life you know I think about my grandparents candy store luncheonette and there's certain shows that I connect to that so I've always loved TV right. Dick Van Dyke always being my favorite mm -hmm. I can remember when I had mononucleosis in sixth grade and the best part was that I got a TV in my bedroom <laughs> That's great. And did I read something like maybe it was during that same period when you had mono, but is that when you first dabbled in writing? Actually, where did you get uh, that? I, I try to prep. Try wow. To prep. <laughs> wow. What was that about? I was bored. Mm -hmm. I was bored. And, the only, and I had a typewriter that had script keys. Like it wasn't just, it was so cool. And I started to write a play, and all I remember is the name of the character, Mrs. Quigley, <laughs> and my father giving me notes on it, but I don't really remember Still to anything be produced. about it. Yes, yes, exactly. So by the time you went off to Brandeis University, which is also my alma mater, so you're <laughs> quite, quite the legend there, what did you imagine when you're, when you're showing up there in Waltham, what did you imagine your future was going to entail, and then what happened there that sort of changed the course? I went to Brandeis thinking I was going to be an actor and, and also wanting a liberal arts education. I knew that this was not a professional school, but I went wanting to be an actor. I was very involved in the theater department. I did the dance classes. I did the acting classes. I did whatever show they would let an undergrad do. It got to the point there were so few th parts for undergraduates that David Crane and I decided we were going to write a play that undergraduates could be in. Let me stop you before we go any further. So David Crane, who was a year behind you, right? How did you guys even first cross paths there? We were in a class together, in a directing class together, and someone had asked me if I wanted to direct a production. No, no, I'm lying. Here's how we first met. We were in a production of Tennessee Williams' Camino Real. I played a whore, he played a street <laughs> urchin, and I've loved him ever since. And and then, I guess, not that long after, Godspell, which was a phenomenon everywhere at the time, comes to Brandeis, and how does that affect you? Guys? I was asked to direct it. I asked David if he would be in it, and he said, no, but I'll direct it with you. And that was actually the beginning of an extraordinary working, a 27-year working relationship. And we'll definitely dive more into that, but before we move on from Brandeis, I just need for my own personal enlightenment to confirm or rebut a legend that I know you've been I asked know the about. Legend. So let's just state for anyone else listening who might care, there's a coffee house at Brandeis within a castle, 
at Brandeis, Stone Ask, and it's called Chalmondelis or Chums. Ch- right. Now, by the way, this month, a large portion of the castle got demolished. I don't know if you knew I that. Know. Is it crazy? I know. It's sad. But anyway, this place has a sort of a little coffee shop with a couch and blah, blah, blah. And, the and performers. Performers. So the rumor was that this might have inspired Central Park. Yes, that's a rumor. That's not so. You know, the truth is, look, everything that you experience, I'm sure, comes back to haunt you somewhere. Right. To be 100% honest, that was not what was in our heads. Right. But don't tell anybody at Brandeis because they really like. Although it's probably gone now that the castle's gone. I, I was told it was spared. That's the little no. part of the castle that was spared. You know, honestly, it it I'm sure it had some effect on it. But that was really more of a late night place. Right, right. It wasn't the same kind of the place you go to have a cup of coffee and a muffin at 11 a.m. So when you graduated, you moved to New York. David's got another year. How did you guys end up reconnecting in New York? Doing of all things children's theater and off-Broadway musicals, neither of which would necessarily be obvious precursors for what you've gone on to do. So we had written one thing when I was still at Brandeis. When I graduated, I went to New York to go to acting school because that's, you know, exactly what should make sense for a writer. Well, in the long run, I think it it helped enormously. But David and I were already starting to write another musical. Um, with a couple other people, someone else helping us with book and lyrics. We had a number of composers, and we were doing a musical called Personals. And I was driving back and forth between Boston and New York just about every weekend so that we could write Personals. Gotcha. Once David moved to New York, in order to continue to write, we got this amazing work with a company called Theater Works USA that takes musicals to kids all over the country. And it was an amazing experience. The man who was creatively running it when we were there, his name is Jay Harnick. Mm -hmm. And he said, he gave me one of my favorite notes I've ever gotten. Write it better. (laughs) Second scene in the first act, write it better. (laughs) And truthfully, that was one of the best notes I've ever gotten because that's that's now my mantra. Right. Just keep going. write it better. So you're doing personals, you're doing a number of things there, but... Nothing really clicked, right? So now you had, from what I read, had an agreement, I guess, with David. You're giving it seven years, and then you're going to try it out west? What we were giving seven years to was we had gotten the rights through some producers to the movie Arthur. And we were writing a musical of the movie Arthur. And we had done a production at Paper Mill Playhouse, and we did a production here and did a production there. And we did one in Chicago, and that's what we once heard. It takes seven years for a Broadway musical to make it to Broadway. Okay. So we were giving it seven years. And during that seventh year, I had a baby. And suddenly, not Let's making pa- money... I'm just going to interrupt, because just so everybody can establish the who everybody is in this. Your husband, at the time with whom you had this child, was David's roommate. roommate. Oh, it's all fucked up and... <laughs> It's it's all it's, right? it's amazing. Right. Correct. And he was writing the music for Arthur. Right. Because he's a composer. Correct. So our oldest was born and suddenly not making money wasn't so funny anymore. Right. And we got an opportunity. We said, all right, let's go out to California, see what we can get. We weren't moving yet. But on one of those many trips, Dream On happened. And that was a series that ended up being with HBO about divorced father whose ex-wife remains his best friend. And this was 
with Norman Lear, of all people, No, right? no? it was Before with John Norm- Landis. It all happened around the same time. So okay. we did this pilot, yeah. we wrote the pilot. Never, We thought that when you work in television, your job is to write pilots and they never get made. <laughs> we thought that's what it was. Just get paid for the pilots. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I thought, all right, you know, you do enough of those in right. a year, maybe you can, you can live. <laughs> we also, simultaneously, we were offered a job developing television for Norman Lear. So we were doing that while the Dream On thing was happening. So everything was sort of happening all at once. And with Dream On, you were given an unusual amount of creative input for first-time writers, right? So And ended up proving worthy of it. You got an Emmy nomination for writing, 93, all this stuff. But in the meantime, I guess the thing with Norman Lear that was the first to come to fruition in a major way was The Powers That Be? Correct. And that was a sitcom for NBC about a senator who has an extramarital affair with his secretary. That was the beginning of you and NBC. You seem to know more about my career than I do. I actually can't even remember that it was that Powers That Be was NBC. That show, we had an amazing cast. I had my second child during that show, and literally we were in casting when my son was born and David called me to see how I was, and my first question was, who'd you see? <laughs> that was an incredible experience, and, and I think this is a good story to share but while we yeah. were working for Norman we had written another pilot for him before Powers the Bee and we were about to go off to do Dream On we had to suspend and extend our contract we were about to go off and do Dream On it was right before Christmas we wrote a script the woman who was running his company thought it was terrific she comes in one morning ashen <laughs> and she says Norman doesn't like it I, I, he doesn't like it I don't know I, I, I'm stunned I don't know what to tell you <laughs> And David and I are standing in the kitchen of that company, and Norman walks in, and he takes my hand, and he squeezes it affectionately, and he says, it was shallow. (laughs) And he puts his arm around David, and he says, and superficial. Oh, Jesus. So on our dream on office door, instead of having David Crane and Marta Kaufman, we'd shallow and superficial. (laughs) So he was not an easy guy to work for, huh? Lovely man. A lovely man to work for. We, I think, I think he felt that we didn't have the experience, although he loved Powers the Bee. He didn't want us to run it. He felt we were a little green to run it. Mm -hmm. But he really liked it. He thought it was funny. He really wanted to make it happen. That was one of those producers' experiences where we thought Norman hated us, and we tried to put everything into that pilot so they wouldn't make it. And guess what? (laughs) I mean, literally, we had... A bulimic daughter, the wife was having an affair with a woman, he was having an affair with the secretary, the son-in-law was suicidal, I mean, she slaps the maid, I mean, we put everything, and we were told no politics, so we put (laughs) everything into that, and then it's on the air for two years. Oh my God, so that went on in 92, it got canceled in 93, and at that point, you guys started to panic a little bit, right? Um, I think panic's a strong word. Well, let me let me read you David Crane. Quote, we just had a show canceled, so for us it was just, okay, we need to get back on the air. It was that, because, close quote, because you feel that if you're not, you get forgotten. You're, you're, you're done, you're over, you're passe. Right. Absolutely, but we did, don't forget, we had Dream On running simultaneously, gone, yeah. so that at least gave us faith. Right. And then we started doing development for Warner Brothers. That was our next real step, was developing for Warner Brothers Television, which was Lorimar when we first got yeah, there. Yeah. Changed over a few times, became Warner Brothers. We did a number of pilots one year, 
one of them went, it didn't last. That was Family, family album. album. Okay. Now, in the meantime, when did it become three of you guys? Because it was Kaufman, Crane, and Kevin Bright. Kevin Bright was the executive producer on Dream On. Okay. That's where we first met him. Okay. At that point, I mean, David and I were very green, and here we're running a show out in, in the middle of... We were so far out in the valley, <laughs> there was a bar in the parking lot that had knife fights all the time. I mean, it was it was insane. Right. I mean, we called it guerrilla television. But what we discovered is that, that each of us brought something else to the table, and that as a partnership, we became a really nice triumvirate where there was great balance and everybody did different things and Kevin was amazing in post and David never wanted to leave the writer's room and I loved all the creative producing. So we really, we, we balanced each other out and felt that we wanted to continue to do that. Right. So the deal that we got at Warner Brothers included Kevin. So after the end of The Powers That Be, you guys decide you're going to start working on two pilots, I think. It wasn't just, let's stop, correct me if any of this is wrong, but just trying to set the scene here first one was going to be for Fox reality check about a high school student who I guess has a lot of fantasies, right? And then the second one, let's it starts as friends like us until ABC comes out with these friends of mine. Then it's six of one. And then at some point it becomes friends. But what did you know at the outset when you guys said we're going to start on a on another pilot here? What was, was it always going to be three guys and three girls? No, here's, you know, we've gone through a few pilots, including that the one with the kid, which was a very interesting experience because here we are writing a high school show and they kept telling us to make it more adult. And we're like, but they're in high school. I right. don't know how you make, you know, <laughs> we can throw in more grownups. Right, but right. Basically what happened with Friends is that having really just come off of Dream On where we had a single star, one person who had to be in every scene, it was brutal on him. And we said, that's it. We're doing we're going to do an ensemble comedy. We went a bunch of people, and we didn't know three boys, three girls yet. We okay. just had this notion of doing an ensemble comedy. And pretty much what we had done all the way up to Friends was versions of ensemble comedies. Right. We did a show called Couples, which was about three couples. So we, we'd sort of been looking for the way in. And when we got to Friends, David and I had come from New York. We were part of a group of six people. In what way? We were all best friends, yeah. me and my then husband, Michael, and David, and his then wife, Rona, my best friend, Deb, and her then husband, Barry. Gotcha. Four of them turned out to be gay. Were you <laughs> were, were you guys all living near each other? No, we weren't like okay. across the hall right, from each right, other, but right. we had all gone to school together, right. and we were each other's family gotcha. in New York. Right. We, really took care of each other. Right. So we were talking about that time, that time in your life when, when your friends are everything, when right. your friends are your family, you're not living at home anymore, you're not, you're not raising your own family, it's you're trying to figure out what your identity is out in the world, and it's your friends that carry you through that. Right. So we started talking about that period of our lives, and you know, at this point we were a little bit like anthropologists, because we were pretty much past it, right. but <laughs> we did feel that it was, it was rich area. Now one question that occurred to me when I was prepping this, and so David, as you mentioned, is uh, is gay. Did you guys ever think of, or could you have even thought in the 90s of having one of these six characters be gay, which would have been closer to your experience? You know, we talked about it. We had always been open to the idea of Chandler being gay. It was mm -hmm. going to depend on who auditioned right. and how they were. And, you know, we were open to it, certainly with Chandler. But you might have had some resistance if you had proceeded. From I don't know. You know, yeah. we did the the lesbian the one with the lesbian wedding 
And although we got some pushback, we didn't get so much that they wouldn't let us do it. Right. I think things were better when we started doing Friends than as time went on and things became more reactionary as time went on. Right. I was reading articles that New York Times ran. Actually, I guess, I don't know if you were, if you remember this, but apparently you guys let a reporter sit in on the auditions as long as they didn't identify who was coming through to see you guys. And they're talking about tons and tons of people. I guess first the casting director independently weeds it down to who's worthy of coming in front of you guys. Then this reporter's embedded and was writing about the fact that, you know, just how hard it was to, to find somebody that you were all happy with. In what order did it all come together? The only one that you knew you wanted was Schwimmer, right? He was the first one because he had auditioned for us the previous pilot season for this show, Couples. And there was something about his hangdog expression that I just thought was <laughs> delicious and would be really fun to write for. He was the first one. The order beyond that, I think Lisa Kudrow was second mm -hmm. in the casting. Casting is a funny thing. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm, I don't know why I'm quoting this movie so much, but going back to the, the producers, the moment of, that's our Hitler. Right. You just know. <laughs> you just know. Right. Somebody comes in and you go, well, maybe if we give notes, let's try it this way, let's try it this way. But then somebody walks in and does something, you get chills down your spine, right. or you say, even better, that actor has elevated our words. They don't just say them in the way that's in my head. They elevate them to something completely new. They breathe fresh life into it. That's what you're looking for. That's what we were looking yeah. for. And there were some fine, fine actors who came across that threshold. Again, just for the purposes of setting the record straight here, everybody in the world seems to say that they went before you guys for this. Well, let me, yeah. let me back up yeah. for a second. Yeah. Matthew Perry was our last one because he was doing... No, actually, Jennifer Aniston was the last one. She was doing another show. Okay. And the first, our first four episodes aired as her other show's first four episodes aired. We just took a gamble. But Matthew, yeah. we were in second position for a pilot he did called LAX 2015 or something like that. It was about LAX in the future. All right. That's so funny. <laughs> and by the way, he was one of our first names on the, our list for Chandler, and he wasn't available. That's crazy. So you had your core six, but along the way, is it any truth that Ellen DeGeneres, John Favreau, some other people were offered parts and past, or were they not? Those are things I've read. Anything to that? Like Ellen DeGeneres supposedly was going to be Phoebe, Favreau was going to be Chandler, and I think there's others that I'd come across never actually happened? Either I have the onset of dementia... <laughs> Or there is no truth to that. I don't remember ever offering it to John Favreau. I don't remember offering it to Ellen DeGeneres. I remember we, for a long time, were talking about Janine Garofalo for Monica. And Cox was going to be... We had originally offered Rachel to Courtney. And she didn't want it. She didn't want Rachel. She this wanted Monica. Thing is so crazy how it all works out. But I guess in terms of before you shoot your pilot, the other element that you have to... That's pretty central to it is the director... And you guys, for that, were able to secure somebody who was a pretty busy guy and then ended up staying with you, I think, for like the whole run or no? He only stayed with us for one season. Just the first? Okay, mm -hmm. this was James He only Burrows. stayed with us, Jimmy Burroughs. Yes. Um, he is extraordinary. He understands physical humor better than... And he also knows how to give someone a physical action that will enhance whatever's going on dramatically. He's a wonderful director, but we 
moved on from there because right. having Jimmy was like having the Godfather, <laughs> and we kind of needed to stand up on our own right. two feet. You guys turn in your pilot or turnover. I don't know exactly what the phrase would be, but it did not get a wonderful response, right? It did not test well. Now, what was that about? Because there was, from what I read, only a little minor change suddenly altered the way at least the network regarded it, right? Well, the change we made for the network was a bullshit change. (laughs) It had nothing to do with what we actually did. Right. We added a main title sequence and music. So I'll Be There For You was not originally there. No, it was Shiny Happy Faces. R.E.M. Whatever that's all. Shiny Happy People, yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Happy Shiny. And they did, what was their, what difference did it make to change the title sequence? Because of the way we opened with little vignettes, it added, it gave some energy to the beginning to have a main title sequence. It just gave it some energy. And I think they really appreciated that. It's all about how do you give people what they want without giving up what you want? That's what your job is, is as a writer, is to take the notes and then retool them, retranslate into something you can do. So the Rembrandt saying, I'll be there for you, who wrote? Which Michael wrote. I was just going to say, who wrote it? This is your husband, but also you guys are credited as as co-writers on that. Yes, we wrote a bunch of the lyrics. So when you wrote that song, do you think it was good? I mean, now you play that song, everybody immediately associates it with friends. Did you have any idea that that itself would be a, a big thing? You know, it's funny. You don't imagine that your song is going to be a number one hit or your show is going to be all over the world. What you imagine is either people will like it or it will be on the air. Right. At least I don't. I'm afraid of getting too far ahead of myself. So no, I didn't imagine that the song would be what it became. I was thrilled that it did because I miss main title songs and themes. Or I missed them at that point. They weren't doing too many. They're starting to again now. But honestly, you don't, you have to, whatever success there is, you still have to get up Monday morning and walk in at 7 a.m. to your set and get some work done. Right. So when Friends went on the air, let's just discuss the the context in which it went on. NBC had been in trouble. Chairs had just gone off in 93. That was their big behemoth. And so then when people are nervous over there, Warren Littlefield's written a book that was very interesting about how panicked they were. Cheers spinoff Frasier goes on, and then this 94 pilot season produces Friends and ER, which, along with Seinfeld, eventually not only saved them, but I think made them much bigger than they'd been when Cheers was there. But what was the importance, in your view, of having Friends go on as part of this Thursday night must-see TV lineup? Would it have worked anywhere? We were between Mad About You and Seinfeld. Yeah. And actually, when we were talking, you were talking earlier about the title of the show, Friends Like Us and Across the Hall, there are a million titles. And they were asking, could we change the title to Friends? And Kevin Bright said, if you put us on in that 830 slot, you can call it Kevorkian. We don't care. (laughs) That 830 slot was very meaningful, but it also puts an enormous pressure on the show. Because you don't want to be the person that keeps people from watching Seinfeld. Right. right. Your show can't be that show. You don't want to be the show that everybody watches mad about you and then turns the TV off. <laughs> you have to build. You have a right. great responsibility in that slot. So on the one hand, I think it it really helped get eyes on it. On the other hand, we felt enormous weight. You had to deliver, yeah. How early on in the process did you realize that it was actually clicking? 
that it was working and I mean and were you able to even now are you able to pinpoint exactly why if you set aside all humility like why did this work and when did you realize starting in November I think it was around the time there was a I don't remember I think it was variety had a spread about both friends and ER being in the top 10 the freshman shows being in the top right. 10 that was very cool that December, I was walking through the airport with my family, and every magazine cover had one of the six of them on there. <laughs> and that was like, well, that's weird. But I'm still like, this is surreal. This right. is surreal. This is surreal. That summer, I was wearing a friend's baseball cap, and I had people come up to me and ask me about it. And I'm thinking, okay, this is crazy. Who are these people? Why do they know my show? And then my rabbi asked me when... <laughs> Ross and Rachel are going to get together. And I was oh like, okay, God. the rabbi's watching. <laughs> we're in. No, actually, it was the beginning of the second season when we were, David and I were at the premiere for the second season. And I think in that moment, we both went season two. Mm -hmm. This is season two. <laughs> People are watching. Right. And it was a, that was a thrilling moment. One of the other guests we've had on this podcast was Jerry Seinfeld. And he... I think coming from a, a positive, admiring place, said that he felt he envied Friends because he thought it was similar to Seinfeld, but with better looking people. Do you see anything to that? I don't. Yeah. I, I, I think they're very different shows. Yeah. Seinfeld, I mean, yes, it was young people living in New York. Right. I can see that part. But the show was not about them being good looking. It was about the warmth. No, of course, of course. Seinfeld is a hilarious show. One of the funniest shows, no one hugs. Right. This is not about the love between those people. This is not about deep friendships. It's about these hilarious, and you can sort of see the connection right. between Seinfeld and Veep almost. Right. right, You know, that there are people who are exist on a certain plane, and they're so funny, but there isn't a whole lot of love there. Right. And I think that's what our show brought that was different is an enormous amount of warmth. Yeah. It was more like, you know, a home-cooked meal. Sure. And for the decade that you guys did your show, you had a pretty regular, it sounds like, and pretty overwhelming schedule. Can you break it down how every week, each day, there was a certain thing that you had to be I doing? can. This is brutal. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Table read Monday morning, which means after the script has gone through, we break the story as a room. The writer goes off and does an outline. From the outline, they do a draft. From the draft, we do a rewrite with the writers. Then it goes to the table where the actors read it, you know, based on that draft. After that, that day we have to do a rewrite by 10 o'clock. It has to be completely done and printed by 10 o'clock the next morning because that's when they started rehearsing. At 3 or 4 that afternoon, we would go down for a run-through just for us, just for the writers and the producers. And we'd go down for a run-through. We would give notes at the end of the run-through. And then we would go back to our little hovel <laughs> and talk about what we felt was wrong with the story. We would do a rewrite that had to be in by 10 o'clock the next morning. The next day, they start rehearsing at 10. At 3 or 4, we would have a run-through with the studio and the network. And then the studio and the network would give us notes. We would give the cast notes. The cast would give us notes. We'd go back to our hovel and order dinner. 
Um, because it was going to be a long night. We would have to do the rewrite by earlier the next day. I think it was, we started at nine on Thursdays because then we did camera blocking day and I would stay on set and do the rewrite throughout the day. You know, if things didn't feel right or things right. didn't work, we would do little rewrites. And we would shoot some stuff on Thursdays that we couldn't do in front of a live audience. Friday was rehearsal, more camera blocking, and then the live audience Friday night. Where would this all take place on the, which lot? Stage 24 of Warner Brothers Warner lot. Brothers. Yeah. Okay. And so when people ask you how friends change your life, I'm sure they're, and I, I'm going to be one of them, you know, your immediate thought is like the positive thing. I mean, it was obviously a huge hit. It's well received, bringing in lots of dough. But on the other hand, it sounds like it usurped a lot of your life, right? I mean, that's not usurped because I would suggest it was a negative thing, but it was a lot of your life. It was a lot of my life. It was hours and hours and hours and hours. And I had young children. I couldn't go two nights without putting them to bed. I would drive home, put my kids to bed, and drive back to work. And then sometimes I would be driving home as the sun came up. I'd get home. I'd get my kids ready for school, send them off, and go back to work. It was hard. hard. It took a toll. However, I cannot complain about that. I mean, I can complain about (laughs) that I wish I'd learned to sleep again since then, but I cannot complain. I have been... It changes the biology or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was bone tired and every season on hiatus something would happen I'd get a kidney stone my back would go out it was my body saying stop right sit down don't move so then why in the middle of this because you guys were 94 to 04 why around 97 did you and David take on another one of these with Veronica's Closet this was Kirstie Alley's first one back on TV since chairs why would you do that to yourselves right <laughs> You know, we learned a valuable lesson that year. We were, look, we were developing for Warner Brothers. We had a deal there. Mm-hmm. We kind of had a responsibility to continue developing and mm-hmm. not just rest on, on friends. Right. So we felt that we had to, but we learned a very valuable lesson. And we would practice it. I'd say to David, would you? And he'd say no. <laughs> and then he'd say, would you? No. Right. That was what we practiced. We had to learn to say no. Right. So that was rough because there was a season there that we had three shows going at the same time. And we used to, we called ourselves, what was we, the we were fire the... Jesse, that we weren't show running, but we were supervising. Right. And we called ourselves, we were firemen. Yeah. You know, that's what we did. <laughs> we put out fires. Right. We didn't really get to dig into anything. And in the meantime, with friends, how far ahead did you know where you were going with everything? Would it be just episode to episode or season to season or and and how much could actually be dictated by the reaction on that I guess Friday night you were saying of the live audience if they're not going for something or if they're extra going for something that you didn't expect could you be flexible when we shot our episodes in London it was the first time it was the reveal of Monica and Chandler in bed together Mm -hmm. and we thought it would be really funny and really shocking and then they would have to do with the aftermath and the embarrassment of that. Right. But the audience began to scream. Scream. In approval. In approval. Right. For a really long time. And David and I just looked at each other. We're like, holy shit. (laughs) What the fuck are we going to do now? Right. That was a moment of we have to change courses and we have to go down this because they're telling us. So you couldn't have been... Or either you weren't very far ahead of that in the... Well, no, it was the end of a season, thankfully. It was the end of a season. So we had some time to ruminate 
Because usually each season you sort of map out a vague arc of that season. And you hope that you're going to end up there. But after a while, the season and the show tells you where it's going. And you have to be flexible. You have to move with it. And also there were a number of seasons we thought, oh, this is going to be the last season. And we'd be writing towards something then go, no, we'll make a deal. Okay, (laughs) another season. Now what do we do? We have to sort of, again, change course. And you'd think it would be the last season for what reason? That you guys were done? or that I know there were some times when the... The cast and the network yeah, had to figure the, things the, out. Mainly that was the eighth season question yeah. where we were going to basically be done and then they made a deal. We weren't done until the end, David and I. We were at the very end. Once Monica and Chandler got a family, the show is over. Because the show is about that time in your life when your friends are your family. Right. And now you're, you've got a family. So let's talk about just as a last friend specific thing here the challenges and the pressure of getting a series finale right, which when that doesn't work out, people talk about it forever and it changes the way they think back about the whole experience. And in your case, you have 50 million people watching. This is the 236th episode. I'm sweating as you're talking about this. My pa- I'm getting so nervous hearing about this Going back this poor to May woman who had 2004. To do this. I know it's already been 13 plus years, but but what was it then? I mean, because obviously, whether it's your rabbi or anyone else who'd been watching the show from the beginning, the thing everybody wanted to know is how are you going to wrap up this Ross Rachel thing? Plus, as you you know, obviously the other storylines as well. So how did you guys approach that knowing so much was riding on it? With great trepidation, <laughs> we knew where we had to end. We basically knew where we had to end. We didn't know how we were going to get there. We didn't know how to do it in a surprising way. We had a number of elements at play, but all of them were about what's next for these people. It was torture. It was really difficult. I could not to this day tell you if we got it right. I honestly, I saw the last episode not too long ago and I was surprised that I was moved. And I couldn't tell if I was moved because I was feeling nostalgic or if it actually played well. I couldn't tell. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I hope we got it. We, yeah. we It certainly wasn't It's All a Dream, which is one of the best finales of all times. This is the new heart. Right? Yeah. So in your case, at the end of Friends, it was like a kind of must have been a jarring thing. This is a decade of your life that's come to an end. Kevin Bright, I guess, was going on with Joey, which you did not want to be a part of no we did not and that was because you saw the writing on the wall with that or it's very rare that that works i think fraser is an example yeah. of it working yeah and we were afraid to be disappointing that we knew we can't compete with friends so what we have to do is reinvent well that's also what i wonder when you when you see like okay vince gilligan has this great success with breaking bad and then the next year he's going to come back with better call saul you know, having already seen a, the Joey as a learning experience or something, do you kind of just, my feeling when I heard about that one was why even, it's almost impossible, you're not going to top it. Right. So why why do that to yourself? That's my question. Yeah. If I'm going to fail, I'd rather fail at something new. Right. Than put a stink on the show that I grew up with and loved so much. Right. Because it does. It, it definitely has an effect not just the finale, but the spinoffs sure. have a vague effect. Yeah. And I think it has an effect on the actors as well. Well, the other thing with you, though, is that you and David at that point, I guess, maybe even I think before the end of Friends said, you know what, after these 27 years, we're going to be solo. How did that 
conversation, if I can ask, go and then how does that affect life since where you're, it's got to be very different after 27 years from working with somebody to being solo? You know, David's like my brother to this day. Yeah. If he had said to me, we can't be David and Marta anymore, even outside of the writing, I think that might have killed me. But after 10 years of friends, I had young children, I was exhausted, and I knew that in an attempt to not compete with friends, I had to find things that had a more, less jokey, more dramatic take. And that's always the area I wanted to go towards. I like, I don't want to have to write a joke a page. I like the drama. I love the drama. I like making people cry as much as I like making them laugh. And in fact, your own viewing preferences, I read, are more towards the drama, not comedy. It's true. I don't watch comedy. That's work. Yeah. I watch comedy and I'm going, wait a minute. How did they make that story turn? Oh, I see. That's funny. (laughs) That's me watching a comedy. It's it's not just sitting back and enjoying it. And David and Jeffrey wanted to do something together. And it was just time. It was time. It was, you know, it was time and it was difficult and terrifying but I don't regret it so what you then had to figure out was what you did want to do and you did some eclectic <laughs> things there I let's just note there were some shorts there were which were sort of social issue related shorts there were a couple of documentaries one of them as I mentioned earlier I, I enjoyed a lot and saw and we did the q a at Brandeis after Blessed is the Match, The Life of Hannah Senesh. But this is a long way from Friends, and I just wondered, was it just things that had been on a a wish list to do, or was it just as they came at you, let's do this, or was it avoiding doing television again? What What was that all about for the years between 2004 when Friends went off the air and 2015 when Grace and Frankie went on? So right after Friends, I was going to take some time off, and then Warner Brothers came to me and said, we have a show, we need you to run it. So I was back doing television fairly quickly, doing this show called Related, a short-lived show. While I was doing Related, I knew, and and Related was a light drama or dramatic comedy. It was an hour long, but it was definitely not like a super heavy show, but it had some heavier moments, and it was a great experience for me because I wanted to be able to tell stories Did you want to be there doing it, or were you obligated to be there doing it? I was asked to do it, and, and... I wouldn't say I do what people ask me, but I felt a responsibility to the people who'd given me the opportunity to do friends and supported me for 10 years Mm -hmm. to do this for them. They needed someone. It was a young writer who hadn't done, or she hadn't done television, run her own television show before, so I said yes. Mm -hmm. During that time, the Blessed is the Match documentary came to me through these two women that we're still doing documentaries with. Oh, great. We're doing a documentary for Netflix about Gloria Allred. Oh, that's going to be interesting, yeah. But what fascinated me about it was learning to tell a story in a different way. And that's what I realized I wanted to spend time doing, is how do you tell a story in this form? Yeah. All right, we're going to do five short films about breast cancer. How do you do a story in this amount of time? How do you do five stories and have them all connect? And I did two of those because that was really fun writing work Mm -hmm. and then I was developing a bunch of stuff after that stuff that I was madly in love with and desperately wanted to do but you know those are the things that never happen and then this happened what are the most significant ways in which TV changed during those 11 years between the end of Friends and the beginning of Grace and Frankie without yet even touching on Grace and Frankie specifically what changed 
less time to tell your story. The commercial breaks were getting longer and longer, and I think we went from 22 plus minutes to just over 20, 21 maybe. So you're losing a minute of story. On broadcast. Yes. And even cable probably. Yes. And that was significant. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when you only have so long to tell a story and you have to tell it within this formula of you're going to do a cold open, then you have this many minutes and then this many minutes and then this many minutes and then you're going to do your tag. There's an inorganic restriction. And I started to see, you know, you look at some of the pay cable stuff and you sort of go, oh, look, they can tell a story. They can take as long as they need. Look, this one's on my DVR. Look, this one's 46 minutes. This one's 57 minutes. And that was a big change. But also, when I stopped doing Friends, there was a huge dip. I mean, that wasn't because I stopped doing Friends, but (laughs) time-wise, there was a big dip in television where I think television didn't know what it wanted. This was the strike time when nobody knew what all this digital stuff was going to do. And then after the strike and people started to figure it out, that's when everything exploded and completely changed. To the point where nobody's going to get 50 million people watching a TV episode again anywhere. If anything, we're going to get less money than we got before, but there's more work. You know, it's a very tricky line to walk because you only get 13 episodes to do it in. You don't get as much money, but there's so much work to be had. But I mean, even just audience size. 50 million was your... Oh, 50 was million your, people. I thought 50, you were talking about no, 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 no. I mean, no, no, no. So for the fifth, your finale, I think, had 50 million viewers. You don't get that kind of viewership. The highest rated broadcast show is now Big Bang Theory. I'd have to check the numbers, but and it's not we'll, like that. We'll never know yeah. how many people watch Grace and Frankie. Well, that was what I Because it's worldwide. Right. So And not everybody is watching it at once. So they know, but I have no idea how many eyes have been on that show. Because Netflix, also partly because Netflix doesn't make their information public, but I wondered, do they share with you that information so you can see who's watching demographically, all that? What they will share is very general things. Like they've shared that the demographics of our audience, it's much wider than they expected. They expected a male gay audience. They expected an older female audience. They did not expect a young audience. And people are watching. So they tell us that. They tell us, and I believe this was printed somewhere, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but percentage-wise, when people were buying Netflix for the first time, percentage-wise, we were the largest percentage of people who watched our show first. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's so let's talk about where did this start, where the idea even of just having Lily and Jane on a show, how did that even come about and then was it a matter of figuring out what you could do with them or was there an idea that and then they came along that fit into the idea so this is kind of crazy yeah i went on a women in entertainment trip to israel okay with a bunch of really awesome women and one of the women who was on that trip is a woman named marcy ross who at the time was working for fox she left fox i think a year and a half later started working for Skydance, we had lunch, and she mentioned to me that both Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin were looking to do TV. I thought she meant together. Because they'd done nine to five and maybe they were I just assumed. Or, yeah. So I called my agent and I said, is it true that Jane and Lily want to do a show together? And she goes, I don't know, I'll call you back. 20 minutes later, she said, they do now. <laughs> so we had Jane and Lily first, we met with them, enjoyed them thoroughly. They clearly had a fabulous relationship. 
when you say we, we is now you and Howard J. Morris, who you had worked on Dream On with? I actually know Howard wasn't not yet. in on it yet. Okay. No, not yet. So it's just you and these ladies. Yeah. And what did you say to them? We just, we want to do something together. Let me now go figure out what that is. Yeah, that's pretty much. Do you guys want to do a show together? Do you want to do one with me? I'd love to do something. Let's figure it out. We went away. I went away. And the first thing... And I knew certain things about that I wanted the show to be about, but we had a number of ideas. And actually, Hannah K.S. Cantor, who also happens to be yes, my daughter, yes. is the one that came up with the idea that the husbands fall in love and get married. That was a key, key that component. That was key. Yeah. And I knew I wanted this to also be about female sexuality to a certain age and all that stuff. So obviously, I called Howard Morris because, you know. <laughs> Just to remind me, so you guys had... Worked together on Dream On and then also some I gave Lifetime. him his first job on Dream On and then he came and did the five films with me. And so what, I, so you had kept in touch all those years of friends and everything? Off and on, yeah. Off and on. So why did you think of him for this? Because of his extensive knowledge of female sexuality over the age of 70. <laughs> no. You know, truthfully, the, the place I have least confidence in myself is with the joke. And it's very hard to find someone who knows how to tell a joke, but also knows how to keep it within story mm -hmm. and not just making jokes. Mm -hmm. And he seemed like the right one for that job. And so you guys now put together a pilot and you shop it around. And why Netflix? You want the real story, don't yeah, you? Yeah, of uh, course. Netflix was not the only place that wanted it, mm -hmm. but there were several advantages. One, HBO was interested, but HBO has a very, very, very long development slate, and we were concerned about getting caught up in that. For people that are listening who don't know what, what that means. So every season, every television season, studio networks develop a number of series, pilots. Mm -hmm. They develop miniseries, they develop pilots, and this is just the process of just going up through the pilot. That's it. And when you only have two hours of programming that you can put something into, the 14 things that you developed, most of them are not going to make it on the air. So we were concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And at Netflix, after you write the pilot, if they like it, you go straight to series. And that seemed really exciting. Rather than you have to do a pilot, you now have to wait another year and a half. Plus, because as you've said elsewhere, when your stars are in their 70s, you don't want to mess around. You don't want to wait time. for too long. Right, right, right. Exactly. So they went for it right away. Yeah. And you guys now have to figure out a whole season. Now we had. Now we have to write a freaking pilot. Right. All oh, right. Right. Because um, at the time it was just a concept. It was just a concept. So okay. then we we had to write the script. They said yay, and we went straight to series, which is on the one hand thrilling and exciting, and on the other hand it's extremely difficult because you can't make mistakes. I bet. You know, with a pilot, you get to make mistakes, and you can recast if you have to, and you can learn from it, you can reshoot something. You can't do that here. And for you, the other, I mean, the, the thing that seems so smart about it, and I guess it's kind of crazy that nobody was really seeing this before you, you guys, and it might explain why what you were saying earlier, that, that Grace and Frankie's really brought in a lot of people for them, is that the biggest demographic in society right now, I think, are baby boomers. That's right. And of them... Primarily women. Women. And who's right. catering to them? Nobody. So you just sort of instinctively felt that there was an untapped 
audience for this kind of thing? You know, I have to say, I don't think very often about the audience. Mm -hmm. I think about what's the show I want to make, who are the people I want to make it with, and I want to write a show I would watch. I can't worry too much about the demographics of my audience or, you know, who I might offend or who I might thrill or I, I can't worry about that. I have to do the show that I feel proud of and people watch or they don't. And we are fortunate enough that people are watching. Mm -hmm. Aside from going now from 10 years of doing a broadcast show to doing now a streaming show, you are also going from doing a multi-cam comedy to doing a single cam which must also feel very different as well right i mean what's the what's you know, the difference i started doing single camera comedy and dream on and right. five was single camera so i don't feel like i mean the difference is when you do multi-camera it's like doing theater every week and you do have to base certain decisions on did the audience laugh at that joke or do they laugh at the setup to the joke because they knew where it was going right you know and that kind of stuff you can pay attention to. You don't get that opportunity here except at a table read until you're in the editing room. Right. So that part is different. It is certainly different experience for the writer who isn't here until six every morning. <laughs> and it's, for me as a showrunner, it's different because, you know, I have to be here at seven o'clock with everybody else and stay till we're done shooting and plus the writer's room. So it's, it's, a lot. a lot, yeah. It's a lot, but I'm definitely sleeping better. I wondered if it's if it's sort of freeing, if it feels freeing to be at a place where you can pretty much say or show whatever you want. Whereas, and, and let's just note that could include, as in season three, the Menage a Moi vibrator for senior women with a rotator head that helps people with severely arthritic hands. It could include <laughs> vaginal dryness. It could include a lot of things. Yeah, that, lube. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on Friends, you guys couldn't even say nipple. That is correct. We could not say, <laughs> we had to say nippular. <laughs> it is very liberating because we wanted to do a show where one of the pieces of it was sexuality over a certain age. And not just talking about sex and sort of in the sort of dirty, yeah, yeah. you know, elbowing someone <laughs> sexually, but to talk about really no one tells you, not just sex, but right. sexuality and being a woman of a certain age, no one tells you that you're going to lose your pubic hair at a certain age. <laughs> no one tells you that. Uh, no, I was unaware. Well, <laughs> I learned that from this show, I'll say. But th there was all this stuff we just thought, you know, we're not talking about what's really going on in this huge segment of the population. For you, after season one, if it's if we can go there, it must have been weird because you're you're doing a show about these two women whose husbands, you know, their marriage, long marriages come to an end, and it, how does they, how do they go on? And then, I believe chronologically, it was after the first season, you go through this yourself. How does does that oh. make you understand your characters better? This is this is the weird thing. Yeah, there's something witchy about our show. <laughs> Yes, I went through a version of this right at the end of the first season, and unintentionally, mm -hmm. there were lines from the show that ran through my head on a regular basis, and I kept thinking, how did I know to write that? How did I know that this is how I would feel? And it was rough, and I actually, in the second season, got to use some of that, my own experience, yeah. things that, the whole jewelry thing at the end of second season, with the, that, that happened to me. Wow. That happened to me. I went into my safe to get my passport out, and there were 20 boxes of jewelry I'd never seen before that were 
gifts that I was being handed out on a semi-regular basis. I was like, I'm going to fucking write that. I'm going <laughs> to fucking write that. Right. I'm right. going to write that. Why not? Use it, Use what you know. Yeah, and then yeah. I got to sort of get some of it out. But it was also things like writing in the heart attack and that the end of that season, right. Martin had to go for open heart surgery. We're doing a thing about Grace getting a knee replacement. I have to have yes. a knee replacement. You know, and then you said something to me earlier about the other knee. And what's terrifying me is that we keep talking in the room about Grace is going to have to have her other knee done. And I'm just like, I don't think Not I want me. to write that right now. <laughs> I think we have to hold off. Right. Well, how about as, as we, you know, wind down here, just a few others, if I may, 13 episodes. How many did you have to do when you did Friends? 24. In a season. So is it freeing or constricting to have only have to have 13? It's different. Yeah. Let me say this. In the first... We did the first three seasons of the show in two years. So in essence, we did it like we did before, and that was exhausting, and I couldn't do it again, partly because we were still finishing post on season two when we started season three. And that doesn't give you an opportunity to let it settle. Yeah. And then have your great ideas in the car, the shower, the bathtub, you know, when you have a break. And I missed that. And it made starting season three more difficult. But was it also different in the sense that when you put out the season, it's all at once so that now that was never obviously possible in the days of Friends. So now you're getting feedback. Some people watch it in one day. Well, first of all, the putting it all out in one day, I mean, it all goes at once. That doesn't change my schedule at all. Yeah. It takes a full year from when we start to when we are done. It has to be delivered in a, a gazillion languages, and that's all part of the post process. So it takes a full year. In terms of what people say, I don't read critics because if I believe the good stuff, I have right, to believe right, the bad stuff. Right. And I don't know that I really want to know what they have to say. I want to, I want to know what people who I care about are saying. And how they feel about it. And, you know, I, I sort of heard the basic buzz that people were feeling this season, the third season was the one that has been the one closest to what I think yeah. we've been wanting to do. And I heard that a fair bit and I feel pretty good about it. But. Well, but this idea, though, that somebody can sit and watch for their whole Sunday or whatever, what you spent a year doing, <laughs> does that. Piss me off? Well, either piss you off or, or, I mean, how would it have affected if somebody watched a season of Friends that way? I think the difference is this is more like chapters in a book with arcs and things that flow from one to the other. We had a couple of arcs on Friends, but mainly it was, I mean, if you think about it, it's episodic. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called episodic television. It's episodic. And each one starts fresh and has an ending. We don't have to do, we didn't have to do that with Netflix. And although we had the Ross and Rachel thing carry over and Monica and Chandler, that really isn't what drove the storylines each one beginning, middle, and finish the story. And that's because of syndication, because right. you know it's not gonna come out in order, so right. you want people to turn on the TV and be able to watch it right. and know exactly where they are. Right. We didn't have to do that for Netflix. So you can watch one after the other, because they flow more organically right. into, the, into each following episode. This third season, you did something that you hadn't done for the first two, and I wonder why. You directed the first episode, of the third season, The Art Show, and then co-wrote with Howard both the season premiere and finale. Why wait so long to direct one, and did you like that experience? I feel that in many ways, my life has been leading towards directing. 
it's the kind of producer I've been my whole life. We talked, I went to acting school. I feel mm-hmm. like I, I know how to talk to an actor. I know how to help an actor get to a performance that'll really be what they'll be happy with and yeah. what we'll be happy with. I'm a little insecure about camera lenses, but that's why you have a DP. Mm-hmm. But I feel like my life has led to this. But I'm running a show, so I can't direct more than one. But you'll continue to do I'm one? doing the 13th episode this season. Okay. I loved it. It was the best. And, and you know, I've always wanted to do it. It just, the opportunity hasn't really shown itself. And I have to say, yeah. I think that part of what has gotten me here is that David and I aren't working together anymore, so it doesn't have to be everything is the two of us. So with Grace and Frankie, how long does this run? Is there a point in your mind right now where you know how this is going to wrap up, or do you just ride it as long as you can? I hope I don't know how this is going to wrap up. We'll go as long as we can, as long as I I know that Jane and Lily want to do it as long as they can, and Martin and Sam want to do it as long as they can. At some point, I'm sure someone's going to say, I'm tired. Yeah. And it could be me as well as any of them. <laughs> but right now, we've still got some more life in us. As a big picture thing, do women face a higher hurdle in the world of comedy still? 20 years ago, you told the New York Times, quote, I think had I not had male partners, I would have had a much more difficult road, close quote. Well, I guess, why did you feel that way? But also today, where you don't have the male partner, or you do with Howard, but I mean, you've, you're doing more. Not the same. Right? Have things gotten better? I was... Um, at the Austin TV Festival last weekend. And one of the panels that we were on was called The Women of Grace and Frankie. And somebody was asking how I felt about being on that panel. And my feeling is, I really hope that one day it can be the people of Grace and Frankie. It doesn't have to be the women of Grace and Frankie or the gay men of Grace and Frankie or the men of Grace and Frankie. That it can be the people of Grace and Frankie, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. I think women have come a very long way. There are more female showrunners. Definitely, but I can't say that it isn't still a misogynist business. And I put that in a double negative on purpose. But do you, even having had all the success that we've been going through, still feel that you see it yourself? Or is it what you, what I'm saying is, do you still encounter it yourself? Or do you find that it's just a general attitude that women are not as funny or whatever it may be. Let me put it this way. I do not encounter that at Netflix yeah, at all. Yeah. My writers have come from rooms where this shit is still going on and women are dismissed and considered to be unimportant. And I hear the stories, but I am fortunate enough at this point in my career, I don't have to put up with any of that shit. <laughs> and I won't. Good. Well... I thank you so much for this. It was great. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk to you. A lot of fun. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.